Ah, oh, fuck. They horked my story. Oh, well. Welcome to episode 17 of Creative Writing. Your favorite podcast on the web. That's not my SR. On today's show, we'll be talking about stuff. Real stuff. That's a KZ 550. And what you don't know is that it won't wheelie. Not wheelie. Well, welcome to episode 17 of the Creative Writing Podcast. And hello. Uh, not only is this your favorite podcast on the web, it's also your favorite podcast on any sort of podcatching device that you use to play podcasts. And uh, pretty soon I'm going to be sending smoke signals into the air. Uh, no, I'm not. So anyway, let's... Um, I kind of want to give a shout out first to the Solstice Slam. If you don't remember, and if you haven't listened to the show for the last like six or seven episodes, or you know, I I set out this goal of in, in five episodes. So I guess it was six episodes ago that uh, we're gonna have a Solstice Slam. If you don't know what the Solstice Slam is, it is your chance to be on the show. If you don't like the show, this is your chance to change that. All you have to do is email the show at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're not even a writer, but you want to get into writing, you have some questions, you have bikes that you like, you're looking at, you know, I don't care what you do. Maybe you are a bridge painter and you want to talk about how you ride your motorcycle to paint bridges every day. I don't care. This It's going to be like a poetry jam. That's why I'm calling it the sum, the Solstice Slam and because, you know, it's kind of right around the spring solstice here. So we got Easter coming up. We just had daylight savings time here in the, you know, America. I'm not sure what other countries still use it. I know Arizona doesn't even care. Arizona, I know you're out there. Send us your stories, damn you. All right. So just a reminder. Most computers nowadays have some sort of built-in microphone because you can do conference calls and you can do, you know, family, you know, Skype calls, FaceTime, whatever the hell you use. I know Macs definitely have that stuff built in. Most Windows stuff have it built in. There's no excuse for you not to record something on your computer and send it to us. I don't care what format it's in. I can probably figure out how to open it. And it doesn't even matter if you don't ride yet. Send in your questions. Send in bikes you like. You're looking at sending why you want to start riding. I don't care. This is your chance. I don't even have to interview you. Just send me your crap. And if you don't, what happens? Episode 20, baby, is when this all goes down. So we have, you know, 18 and 19 to go. If, if I don't get enough stuff, I'm, what I'm going to do is fill in the balance with a kazoo solo. And I don't think you want to hear that. Even instruments that people like, I don't think they want to hear an hour of it straight, unless you're like a Fish fan and you like the band Fish, because like then one guitar solo can be like an hour long. So that's what this is going to be. It's going to be like a Fish concert, but if Trey Anastasia, who, if he's still the guy that fronts Fish, if he just played a freaking kazoo for an hour solo instead of a guitar. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, there's no excuse. If you don't have a computer, send it in on your smartphone. We're going to be talking about smartphones in a little bit. So do it before I come down there and verbally smack you in the face. All right, let's get into the show. 
This is one of the better pieces of music I've recorded for the show. Really dig this little little ditty. So hey, before I get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, and I'm going to quit saying meat and potatoes, I'm going to think of some other things that go together, like whiskey and dancing. Uh, before I get into the whiskey and dancing of this show, let's talk about the weather a little bit. I know around town, I've been listening to the Cleveland Moto Podcast and a few other uh, radio shows and whatnot, and I know that right now it's warming up in certain parts of the country, and some parts are still under snow. I've been talking to our friends that you heard on the last episode from Coeur d'Alene, and it's been sunny, snowy, and hailing all in the same week. And yeah, this has been a whirlwind week for me. It's been like a billion degrees here in SoCal, in LA area. I think there was maybe one day of cloudy weather with the slight hint of a chance of rain, but uh, I don't remember. I don't think it rained. I When you live in Southern California, you can't remember when it rains. It seems like one of those things that would stick in your head since it only happens like twice a year, but it just means that, you know, you get 360 sunny days clumped together that you can't remember anything else. So from what I know and from what I've heard around uh, the, the uh, America sphere is that the places where it's warming up now the salt on the roads has made it kind of wobbly and the ground is still kind of cold. So be careful. And, uh, you know, your tires can feel like you're riding on flat tires because of, I guess, maybe the way the salt interacts with them or something. I've never ridden on salted roads, so I don't know. But all I know is to be careful in those areas where there's still crap on the ground. And I guess you guys have to wash your bikes and do stuff like that to, to keep them maintained, to keep all that grime and grit off. Um, Another thing is that uh, what I've heard from that, those parts of the world where you don't ride uh, during the winter is that, you know, cars aren't used to seeing you on the road yet either. So please be careful. We don't want to hear. We do want to hear crazy crash stories in episode 20. If you got any of those and if you got any uh, moral stories, uh, I guess those are called fables, but fables are fake, right? If you have any... Um, true stories of crashes or things that other people can learn from, please send those to us. So just don't contribute to them right now is what I'm getting at. Uh, We don't want to hear about anybody crashing because of the weather and anything crummy like that. So please, please, please uh, be careful. And, you know, cars don't see you right now because they're not used to you know, in those parts of the countries where motorcycles take a break, they're probably used to seeing more snowmobiles maybe than cars on the roads. But yeah, just be careful right now because when you're coming on, not only are the roads dangerous, but people's brains are dangerous right now when they're not used to, you know, seeing you for a couple months and all of a sudden here you are popping out in volume. Yeah, take it easy. Be careful. Keep your eyes peeled. And I want to talk about something that relates to this later too something that just came up on Facebook and uh, around the media sphere. And although I admit, and I just admitted, that I've never ridden on salty roads nor had to winterize a bike, uh, I do have a few tips here. And some winterizing tips came in from Nitrous Chris. If you remember Chris Singsheim from a couple episodes ago, he gave me some tips on winterizing your bike. So let's reverse those. Uh, Obviously, I think if you've lived in... uh, places where you've had to store your bike you you park it up on two stands to keep from getting like flat spots or cupping and stuff like that in your tires so hopefully if you don't do that you uh 
have something else figured out, you store your bike on a bunch of that um, shit, stay puffed marshmallow stuff so that it doesn't uh, put any weight on the tires. So uh, when the season comes back on, uh, you've got stabilizer in your tank. I don't know how that works because I've never had to use it. Maybe you can run it straight through your uh, fuel system and maybe it, you know, once you run that first tank of gas out, it's gone. I have no idea. I've never used the stuff. And uh, I never had a personal watercraft where I needed to use that stuff. Um, you know, if you fogged your motor, um, preferably Chris told me through the plug holes. That makes a lot of sense. That'll keep corrosion and condensation from building up inside. And obviously, if you have certain components that don't corrode, like titanium or uh, what's that? Adamantium, that stuff that Wolverine's claws are made out of. You probably don't need to do that. So, hey, there you go. But if you did, it's not going to hurt anything. So, you know, if you fog the motor, I guess that stuff burns off. Um, Don't change your oil until the spring, right? Because uh, hopefully you didn't do that because the oil, water will condensate over the winter. And just like the gas, a lot of gas is ethanol nowadays and it'll condense, you know, ethanol is hydro, I forget the word for it, but it, it attracts water. It's not hydrophobic, it's hydroattractive or something like that. And it, it'll actually gather water. And you have, that's why you got to put the stable in, right? Or some fuel stabilizers because you don't want all that uh, water getting into your tank and, and um, you want as little bit to separate out as possible. So, you know, fill up the tank all the way. That was a tip he gave me so that you don't even have uh, empty space for condensation or you have the least amount possible. So dudes, I hope you did not start your bike up over the winter because then all the condensation and stuff and, and water that you let sit, it, uh, that you were gathering, um, you've now run it through the motor and that ain't great. So now that it's springtime, check your tires before you put them down. Hopefully you stored your bike on two stands or up on, you know, somehow supported on a, maybe a center stand or some sort of fancy axle chocks or something like that. Now's the time to drain your oil and change it before you go on your first ride because now all the water and any goopy stuff that's condensated will come out in that oil and hopefully you didn't start it to keep your motor fresh over the winter because you've got everything now right where you want it in the palm of your oil, you know, pan. <laughs> and you drain all that shit out and voila, everything's good to go once you change your oil, baby. And also um this is a good time to, you know, flush your gas tank and all that stuff. I don't know if you have to flush it with a stabilizer or just run it through, but any amount of water in your gas is going to, uh, you know, not be good for anything else. It'll Hopefully you put stabilizer because your carbs will be full of goop or enamel, you know, or your throttle bodies and all that stuff. So, yeah, you just you don't want that stuff sitting sitting around for a few months. So, you know, time to flush all that right now. And and I don't know, like I said, I don't know exactly how st- the fuel stabilizers work if you just run them through and supposedly it, like, keeps everything cool. Um, but hopefully when you stored your bike, you ran stabilizer in there for a little bit so all the lines and everything don't have, like, a nice uh, either goopy, goopy uh, soup of, like, a water mix gel or enamel, you know, if you have, like, a carb bike. So, yeah. So do all that crap before you before you even go out and, and get hit by a car that's not used to seeing motorcycles for the first few months. All right, let's uh, jump here into the beginning of the show. All right, first thing, 
On the agenda is some limericks. Uh, St. Patty's Day just happened, and I know a bunch of festivities were uh, on people's radar this weekend or this week. So uh, let's hear some biker limericks that I made up. I took some. Of course, limericks are normally pretty dirty, and uh, I could have kept them that way, I guess, but they didn't make sense. They didn't relate to motorcycles. So I altered them and made up my own. Let's hear a couple of them. There once was a man from Liverpool who ran over his foot with his buell. He heard a great splat, his foot it was flat, and the pain made him howl like a fool. There once was a lass from Nises. She had bikes of all different sizes. One was too small to ride it at all. The other bike won lots of prizes. There's an old hobo named Dave. With the non-running bike in his cave. Although I admit he can't ride, only sit. Think of the money he'll save. There's an old man named Barry from Alsace. His ball bearings are made out of brass. And in stormy weather, when he pops wheelies through the heather, sparks fly all over the grass. (laughs) I don't know. I just made that one up right now. That's why planning's important, kids. Also, so you don't end up wasting your life hosting a podcast. Planning is important, kids. Planning is important. All right. Getting into the whiskey and dancing of this show... First thing I want to talk about that came onto my radar just today, or actually I guess it was probably yesterday, is um, lane splitting. Now, if you're not familiar with lane splitting, that's where uh, you, well, let's call it filtering. Filtering is like, and lane sharing here in California, is where you're able to ride uh, in between cars and share a lane with cars. And as we all know, California Highway Patrol and the University of Berkeley came out with a study recently that proved that lane splitting, when done safely under certain conditions, is safer than not lane splitting or lane sharing, I guess we should call it. The reason being is because some jerk bag comes up behind you and rear ends you. And guess what? I've seen lots of pictures. I, you know, in this in this post, actually, if you go to Facebook and look up Moto Lady, she is uh, someone that's here in SoCal doing really awesome things in the motosphere. And uh, I saw it on her Facebook page, and it's got like a bajillion replies. And this one troll guy, I think he was just doing it to see. I don't know if he was playing devil's advocate or if he was being serious, because... There's no doubt that sitting behind someone waiting to get hit is way, way stupider than splitting lanes. And um, everyone's saying, oh, uh, you know, you could do it and and you'll get sideswiped. I mean, it's not a matter of if or when. Well, okay, if it's not a matter of if or when, even if that is the case, wouldn't you rather get sideswiped and maybe fall over rather than get crushed in between two cars that weigh, you know, upwards of like 3,500 pounds? That's like a ton and a half of steel ramming you, you know, making a sandwich out of you. And bikes are mostly plastic and aluminum, you know? 
the most uh, heavy-duty item is the engine, and you're sitting on top of that, so that's not going to offer you any protection. So if you're lane splitting, you won't be near the end of any lines to begin with to get smashed from somebody coming up behind. And if you're lane splitting, even if you're not at the end of, like, say, a long row of traffic, say you started moving and everyone's slowing down again, you're not going to get smashed by anybody because you're going to be in between the cars. And yeah, people change lanes, but you know what? People change lanes on a freeway when you're not lane splitting. You have to be, that's something you just have to be aware of. And you're not doing it at 90 miles an hour. I know there's people that do it at 90 miles an hour, but I'm saying for the people that actually do it the right way, it's proven. And the Highway Patrol here in California does it. I'm sure police organizations all across the country do it. It's just not legal for citizens to do it, or it's not technically illegal. I found out this that it's not technically illegal in some states, but it depends on where you're at and the officer as to whether or not they enforce it. So already it's not illegal. And I know a lot of people look to California to, for laws, especially um, laws that govern big metropolitan areas because pretty soon California will just be one huge big metropolitan area. But this is something that... Uh, Okay, let's let's talk about the helmet law, and let's talk about um, lane splitting. The AMA is doing some really great things right now. I'm actually going to talk about them. I was reading their website a little bit today after reading some uh, MIC news, um, which I will try to share with you if I if I can. And you know. The AMA is fighting for a lot of stuff, and one of the things that they mentioned is that the abate groups actually do a lot of the organizing of, um, you know, actionable items and submitting stuff to Congress and stuff like that. So uh, it might not be that necessarily that the AMA endorses certain things or even takes the initial steps to get them through Congress. But what I do know is that they are doing, they're not just an organization that sanctions races. They're not just an organization that gets you discounts on, you know, riding gear and like hotel stays and shit like that and rental car, rental bike stuff. They're an organization that lobbies to Congress to keep stuff for motorcyclists, whether you're a road rider, a dirt rider, or both. And the lane splitting thing is something that a, a lot of people haven't been touching on. Uh, they're they're kind of doing this helmet law thing, right? And I would rather like f- drop the helmet law. The helmet law, sh- uh, you know, should be a choice. <clears throat> pardon me, should be a choice. Go after this lane splitting thing. Make lane splitting a choice as well. And if you don't like to wear a helmet, and if you live in a place where you where helmet is an option, and you don't have to wear one. Why can't lane don't don't badmouth lane splitting? Because I could badmouth not wearing a helmet all day. And some of the studies that came out of NHTSA, I believe, um, maybe it was the MIC. I believe it was NHTSA uh, showed that like eighty six percent of people wear helmets in the United States, and even in places where there aren't helmet laws. So that's only like fourteen or fifteen percent of the population that doesn't. So. I think we can see that, you know, 85% of the population has some good common sense. And um, let's make lane splitting legal for these people, too. And then maybe another 85% of the motorcycling population will also use their common sense. And it's true that you can't... um, 
I mean, here in California, you'll see people doing it at like 80 or 90 miles an hour. You also see people doing wheelies on the freeway and like, you know, other stuff that's illegal. You'll see people talking on their cell phone in their cars. I mean, you'll see people speeding in cars. It's nothing uh, that, you know, that's just the individual. But if you make it legal, you will have people filtering properly also. And uh, I filtered plenty. And most of the times when traffic is slow, I don't see people hauling ass. There's only a couple times where I've seen people flying by. Uh, through the traffic doing like 35 when traffic was only doing about 10 and um yeah so that is well over the 15 miles an hour f- faster than traffic that the um chp condones so um you know i just read somewhere that they in i want to say queensland and maybe new south wales australia is also just legalized filtering and filtering is not lane splitting. What they consider lane splitting is high-speed splitting, you know, um, where you're splitting two lanes. It might even be like opposing lanes of traffic. I, I'm not 100% sure. But filtering is where you're going with traffic and you're filtering through. You're, you're freeing up congestion and you're being a safer rider because you're not sitting in between cars, huffing up fumes, overheating yourself and your bike and offering yourself up to be some, you know, sandwich material for when someone is texting or even not even texting. Maybe their kids are fighting in the back seat and they turn around. I have kids and I, you know, obviously I drive them. My hover car is broken at the moment, so I really need to get that thing fixed. And my helicopter I had to sell. So I have to take a regular car now. And I do get distracted when my kids are screaming or like my kids freaking out and I like have to turn around and make sure they're not choking on a piece of food, you know, like I've never almost hit anybody and I definitely like keep my eyes open when bikes are around. But I mean, I've like, you know, taken my eyes off the road for a few seconds. What if a bike had come in between me and a car? I've never, like I said, I've never rear ended anybody, but that's just how easy it is. Even me, somebody that rides, you know, I take my eyes off the road to look at my kid and make sure they're not choking or make sure that they're not killing each other back there. You know, they might maim each other slightly, but as long as neither one of them is dead, then, uh, you know, all good. Right. So, it doesn't, you know, it's not always a cell phone or trying to light a cigarette or changing the radio station. It's all those things. So it doesn't matter. I think that, you know, the helmet law thing, uh, and, and while we're on lane splitting and the helmet law thing, um, I heard a, a really good comment about the helmet law. Um, somebody did a news report on what the police were cracking down on after bike week, which just ended in Florida ended on the 13th i believe um police were looking for i mean it's totally common sense stuff you know drunk driving exhibitionist beads stunting all this stuff right and the person that was making the comments said something like well you know what like this sort of hooligan like same sort of hooliganism that we're talking about you know people popping wheelies people splitting lanes real fast people doing burnouts in the street all this stupid stuff uh, pretty soon, th- those are the type of people that are keep crashing or keep causing, you know, giving motorcycles a bad name and whatnot. They're never going to make lane splitting legal, and they're going to make helmet laws mandatory because these people are still are going to keep like, you know, causing accidents and getting hurt and dying. And Florida, the NHTSA, I think, just announced that Florida has the highest death rate. So that's why this kind of all um, 
focused around Florida's because right now Florida ha- having a you know legendary Daytona Bike Week there was putting it under the microscope. And so Florida has the highest instances of death, probably because the bikes people ride and the way they ride and all those like ride of the century shit and like stunt those and all this and that. And I'm not, I I know I sound like Johnny Goody Two Shoes when I'm talking and I admit that I'm not, but I admit that I'm not reasonably and respectably of other people. If I'm going to do something stupid, I usually do it on like an open stretch of empty road. Or, like, up in the hills up here where there's no cars. You know, I haven't seen a car for 20 minutes. Okay, I might try to pop a wheelie and, you know, or go fast, super fast around some of these turns. And, you know, there's not likely to be a car or anything in front of me. So, but when you do this stuff all the time, like on crowded streets and showing off for people and you're eating shit, there's so many YouTube videos of people eating shit on the freeways. And it's like, what the hell? You're going in a straight line. But you're doing, you know, a 12 o'clocker sitting on the fuel tank and over you go or like whatever. Your buddy does it, tries to buzz you going faster than you doing a wheelie and clips you and you both eat shit like whatever it is. And then you're not wearing helmets because you're in Florida. Right. So, I mean, it's just funny. Whatever, whatever the circumstances, Florida is um, having a higher death rate. They're having a lot more exhibitions of uh speed and like reckless driving and stuff like that and driving under the influence and they don't have helmets so the death rate's going up and so the helmet law you keep stuff up like that not only is it giving motorcyclists a bad name and we all hate like when people do stuff because people don't mind if you do it once in a while but when everybody's doing it all the time now it's the thing you know and it puts everybody on the on the hot plate that you know doesn't want to be there and so basically, I mean, I think we all kind of can get preachy and um I know I'm doing a little bit now, but it's it's what's going to lead to never allowing lane splitting and making mandatory helmet laws mandatory. So why don't we just play it cool, fellas and ladies that are out there doing crazy shit? Why don't we just chill out for a little bit? We'll all we'll get, you know, lane splitting's kind of going through the ropes right now in Congress and some people love it and some people hate it. I'm sure some people hated the carpool lane when it first came out. That's not fair. People are getting a ride in the carpool lane. Well, you know, ride a motorcycle and split lanes. Quit complaining and save some fucking gas and insurance. So, and um, be a little freer. So I don't know. But for what it's worth, um, the person that said this, it made a lot of sense what he was saying. And um, it was another, it was another radio show that I was listening to. And they, you know, it made sense what he, you know, he, he said something to the effect of like, you know, stick with me here. Don't take me for a crazy. And then he went on, but it makes total sense. You know, the things that they make mandatory in vehicles like ABS and airbags and all that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, they're not going to make, I don't think they're going to make Helite vests or any of the other airbag vests mandatory, but you never know, you know, like down the line, they may say, look, enough people are being idiots and keep killing themselves and we're going to improve the quality of life by making these things mandatory, you know? So it's just like a thin line we're walking by being a bunch of douchebags, especially like at fun places like Sturgis and Daytona and things like that. So I don't, I don't think as many people die at Sturgis, actually. I think it's, for whatever reason, it's Florida's getting this crazy high death rate. Um, 
and I'm not 100% sure why, except for the fact that it's Florida. So Adam Carolla actually used to play this awesome game called Florida or Germany, and he would read two news stories that were just like bonkers off the wall. Couldn't tell which is which, to be honest. So yeah, for what it's worth, take that, Florida. All right, through the magic of editing, it's been a couple days, and I actually um, went for a quite a long ride down to the beach yesterday uh, over by Malibu, and, well, actually to Santa Monica, and uh, lane splitting left and right, uh, speaking of lane splitting, and couldn't have seen it done more safely than I have in a long time. Nobody doing 30 miles an hour faster than uh, traffic, um, nobody really split going that fast at all. Traffic was like back, uh, uh, was like a parking lot basically uh, in certain spots. And anytime I've ever gone through downtown, uh, I had jury duty a couple times. And I remember driving down there and instead of riding, and I could see the courthouse from the freeway. And you're just sitting in traffic thinking, dude, I could literally get out and ride a bike faster than this, uh, a bicycle, probably a pair of rollerblades faster than this, and get there in just the amount of sa- same amount of time or sooner and not have to uh, you know, drive up the street to find parking and then walk down to the courthouse. And it's just such a bummer how bad traffic is. And as I watch these bikes go by, it just reminded me of how great filtering and lane sharing is and everybody seemed to be doing it uh to the like uh california highway patrol's recommendations and there was zero problems no i think there was a guy on a hyper motard that had a slow no uh maybe he was on one of the ktm uh like motard looking thing um had to slow down a little bit when two cars are pretty close together and he just kind of chilled for a sec till one you know, just drifted. I don't think they moved for him. They just kind of drifted back over and he just went. But that was the only time I saw where a motorcyclist couldn't get through the lanes. And um, yeah, just such a really beautiful thing. It took me like, God, it's so crazy living in LA because it should, it's like a 20, it's like a 30 minute drive from my house to the beach. And it took like an hour and 10 minutes just because traffic is so terrible sometimes and it's super unpredictable. So Perfect example of lane splitting working. And while we're on the topic of the AMA and making lane sharing legal, I, I, you know, on the Moto Lady, I forgot to say that the, I think I forgot to say, like I said, it's been a couple of days now since I recorded this. Um, I believe that story was about a 50 state lane splitting bill that they want to sign and they want to get petitions on it. And you need like 25,000 signatures. And when I signed it, there was only about 6,000 on there. So if you want lane sharing to come to your state so that you can filter through traffic or share lanes, um, not necessarily splitting because I just listened to the Cleveland Moto podcast also, and they were talking about lane splitting, which I guess in a lot of places means that uh, that has like a negative connotation because that means you're doing it at a high rate of speed or that doesn't mean that you're necessarily sharing. But here in California, we call it lane sharing because you're not just filtering through at a red light, although that's one time to use it. You're also moving when traffic is is extremely slow on the freeway. And I know for me, I have an air-cooled bike. And if I don't, I can just feel the heat coming up. It's like I lit my bike on fire and I'm just asking for it to seize if I were to stop like on one of these 100-degree days here in Southern California trying to sit there on the freeway and then it's baking and you have the 
heat from the pavement coming up through your feet too. I know everybody in Arizona and Nevada uh, and probably Texas and New Mexico where it also gets crazy desert hot um, are saying cry me a river right now because they have the same sort of stuff. But you know what, guys? Fuck you. Uh, You should split lanes and then you won't have anything to complain about. And uh, I won't have anything to brag about. So anyways, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be able to lane share. And that brings me to some, some more things about the AMA. I, this whole episode, uh, as I was kind of rethinking about it and the stuff I had written down in my notes, I thought maybe I should just like mention what the AMA is doing right now, because there's a lot of good stuff uh, coming out of that particular organization. So while I think we can all agree that the AMA helped to fuck up American road racing, um, they've got a pretty good handle on flat track and hill climb, and I think they still sponsor the cross events, the arena cross and supercross and stuff like that, um, partnering with you know Monster Energy and all that great stuff. So other than that, I mean, you gotta you gotta realize that they do a lot of stuff they're not just a a race organization and they're not just the world like america's biggest club or whatnot they also do a lot of legislative stuff and as a um a rights and advocate group they are you know second to none they pair up with these people like you know sema for example during the rpm act and all you know other off-road coalitions and stuff to bring off-roading plus you know people that are are uh you know the helmet law thing, the lane splitting thing, they they quietly have, I think, quietly endorsed the lane splitting thing because they haven't really taken a stand on that. And like I said, I've probably said it three times this episode, and I've said it before, I wish they would get off the helmet law thing, get on this lane splitting thing. Um, so what it is is, you know, if you listen to the last episode of Motorific Podcast, they talk about all the benefits of the AMA. You get discounts. You get uh, gear discounts on some things. You get this publication, sort of like if you're a AAA member. Uh, I don't know about other insurance companies, but I have AAA, so I get their Westways, which is like a travel mag, and it's got a bunch of discounts. You get a discount if you go to hotels. Um, apparently, that's what they were saying on the Motorific podcast, is that you get deer, uh, gear discounts if you go on certain sites. And, you know, they just paired up with Cycle World. And you get discounts on like all sorts of stuff through that uh, pairing up and that collaboration. And okay, so yeah, great. They're they're almost like a, a road club for America. But they also do, like I'm saying, all this other legislative stuff. They do racing stuff. They do advocacy. And they do a lot of stuff that um, probably makes joining them uh, a little bit better for you. And just like a couple of the things that you know, they've done recently, I, I was reading where they want to close down the Pismo Beach dunes. And the, there's like a dust um, study that was done on how much dust dis- is displaced and blown around surrounding communities. Well, dudes, it's like out here in California, moving out to Ocotillo or something and then complaining about there being a desert there or moving out to Joshua Tree and complaining about there being too many Joshua trees and sand. I mean, dude, that's what is there. And in the desert, it gets windy. It gets windy in Vegas. It gets windy in Palm Springs. It gets windy like everywhere that there's flat open land with no vegetation to hold the sand down. You're going to get dust kicking up, you know, dirt and dirt and dust and sand grains flying around so 
the people there are complaining that pos- uh, up the Oceano Dunes are complaining that um, possibly the off-roaders kicking all the dust up into the air. Well, you know what? Off-roaders don't make sandstorms. And there was a geologist. I had just read that this guy came in for the state, did a study, said that when the park is open, he did not see – he actually saw less uh, – I guess less dust particle displacement during the times when the park was uh, open to off-roaders than when it was closed. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what their you know seasons are, but uh, yeah. So he, he got demoted apparently, according to the story that I read, um, and it's because he didn't go with the status quo, which is they wanted to hear that when more people are there, you know, doing off-road. St- stuff that it kicks up more dust and then the surrounding community can you know justify shutting it down so uh, you know they advocate they join up with groups like that to advocate to keep off-roading at places like that which is like the last legal place in california where you can ride on the beach and ride uh next to this you know in the sand that's literally you know right next to the surf and a lot of people see motorcycles riding on the beaches and i could tell you if they don't get a permit for that stuff that is not what's happening around here you can't really do that unless you go south of the border and way south uh you know down to like san felipe and stuff like that and you can uh, there may be places up in oregon where you can do it but in california that's not legal except for pismo beach so uh and then I, i just saw that they are doing like a Clear Creek Bill, which is supposedly going to open up uh, quite an expansive tract of land uh, that's a little bit south of Hollister. And if you listen to our friends on the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast, you'll know that they cruise Hollister all the time and they rave about how great it is. And uh, so on March 16th, it was going to go to the House for consideration whether or not they should open the Clear Creek National Recreation Area. well, it's a, it's a National Recreation Area and Conservation Act. So, I mean, you know, they want to keep things preserved. And who better to preserve them than the people that use that stuff? You know, they, they don't want to see it go away. So they're usually the best ones about policing how well it's taken care of and whatnot. So, um, yeah, let me see how big this is. I mean, let's see what we're talking here. This says that, um, okay. So the Clear Creek National Recreation Area and Conservation Act would establish a recreation area and reopen about 240 miles of trails. So that's a big chunk of land. They also do other stuff like let you know uh, a couple, I believe it was February when Diane Feinstein, who's a uh, Democratic uh, senator from California, issue or urged Obama to go ahead and name some things national treasures, which would ban like anybody from using them. And then she, because apparently she didn't have time, you know, Congress is a whole process that we don't even care about, but you know, we do care about because things like this can happen. But when you look at how things work and you start to figure out, like, you don't just throw a bill in, the president looks at it and signs it or goes through all these things. You, you realize that there's like a lot of intricacy here and sometimes you don't have time to play with. So right after she urged him to like cut off these things from the general public, which is kind of silly, she then turned around and uh, introduced legislation making 142,000 
acres of the California desert as permanent off-highway uh, recreation area. And so, I mean, she's on it. She, you know, they keep you abreast of who's doing what as far as, you know, Congress is concerned and as far as who, you know, who's helping, who's not. Um, and then you read these articles. Like I've read I've three or four articles about that particular uh, bill in that legislature, and it almost looked like she was being a bad guy, but then you look, turn around, and she's like trying to help, actually. You know, she doesn't want stuff to go away. So kind of lets you see who maybe when a vote comes around, who you should be voting for, you know? And they do a lot of, they do news, they do giveaways, they do all this crazy stuff. And I really dig reading a lot of the things that they put on their site just because they kind of shows you that they have your, your best interest in mind. So uh, having said that, we talked about the RPM Act a couple, uh, last episode and maybe the episode before that because it really was looking kind of scary. Like the EPA's wording is that, hey, we're going to come and, you know, any vehicle that wasn't made for competition is not going to be allowed to run aftermarket not anything, but you know, uh, fuel inje- you know, fuel systems or exhaust systems, anything that's going to alter the factory um, emissions um, output on that. And so, the only thing that I can think of that would be like a, f- a f- I don't know, purpose built machine would be like an Indy car or the ALMS, which is the American Le Mans series cars that are like Daytona prototypes, um, radical sports racers. Uh, you know, anything like that. I mean, if you look at the SCCA, there's only a few classes where they haven't taken uh, an existing sports car and even NASA, which is the National Auto Sport Association. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know if IMSA and there's a bunch of other ones, other smaller ones, but I mean, those are the two national ones that I know of that I used to be a part of. And they, you know, almost every single car in there is is a stock car that's been modified for racing. And the American Iron and NASA was one of my favorite uh, classes to watch because you got Camaros and Mustangs and stuff like that going against each other. And imagine if you couldn't take a car and, you know, you're not going to ra- drive it on the street anymore and, and you can't do that. And the same with your bike. Maybe you have a track day only bike that you trailer or a bike that you take out to the motocross track and you're you, you're never going to, ride it on the street right but you cannot uh you just can't unless it's made for competition use you can't uh adjust it in any way to to make yourself more competitive so the rpm act uh and i was thinking about this because of our listener chris singsheim that we interviewed has a plated bike and i'm not sure what year his bike bike is but uh, they were going to go back a, a ways on this bill and grandfather stuff in from like 2008 they were thinking or 2012 and working in the industry. I know that in 2006, they had some bills that were uh, changing the way that vehicles were made for 2010. And so, I mean, I'm thinking those are two years that they started to make changes that they might've looked at and said, Hey, we can go back to this year because right here we said that we're going to make blank, blank, blank compliant by this date. So basically the RPM act, which is the recognition of the preservation of motorsports is basically a um, reaction to the rewording of the Clean Air Act that the EPA was, was, you know, kind of rewording because they felt they had the authority to. 
and it would really it would really have affected a lot of stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that you can still take your ride your bike to the track, take off all your stuff and, you know, ride it and be competitive. You're you're going to pretty much have to choose whether you're going to have a competition only vehicle or not. Because if you are going to have a track day bike that you ride to the track, you're just you're going to have to keep all the stock stuff on it. You won't be able to like soup it up and, you know, that's just necessarily evil but if you're competitive it's not really a thing and a lot of competitive riders don't even like to ride on the street and and you know i said this a long time ago probably episode seven that i don't think johnny racer wants to get off his like you know 180 power horsepower bike and then go sit in traffic at 50 miles an hour to see how slow he can ride home so a lot of guys that ride once they ride on the track, they don't like riding on the street as much anymore anyway. So, you know, maybe you already have a bike that's competition only. And so basically the RPM Act will stop the EPA from regulating race bikes. And, you know, if you do have a stock bike, though, that goes has like 180 horsepower, like I don't think you really need to modify it uh, any any much more than that there's a lot of bikes uh i was listening to the stock is for squares podcast a couple of weeks ago and they were doing this game where they were guessing the horsepower of bikes and it's funny that some thousands had like as much horsepower as 600 so it's just based on the manufacturer and what they're squeezing out of it because the bmws i know uh, from stock they come pretty pumped up and obviously kawasaki uh boasting their h2r having like you know 300 horsepower or whatever it is and that's a a stock machine i mean i know it's a stock like not street legal machine but it is a stock machine coming from the factory with that much horsepower imagine you know just if you could get a bunch of bikes together that all had the same amount of horsepower you wouldn't really need to modify them to be competitive against each other but i don't know that's not how racing rules work so anyway but yeah so the AMA. All I'm, all I guess I'm saying is that the AMA has a lot of cool stuff uh, going on in those aspects that lead to a higher quality of life for riders. And go check out their website. They've got so many issues. I'm not even going to begin to cover what they are, but um, everything from black boxes to like sound testing kits. I mean, it's it's incredible. So go check them out. And uh, AM AmericanMotorcyclist.com. And um, you can check out news, racing, rights, advocacy, all this great stuff there. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, it's funny because now that mentioning sound testing kits, I was going to go over some technical stuff regarding like noise and motorcycle noise. And I guess I'll do that another time. Hell, I don't even know if I'll have enough time to get into my Industrial Revolution spiel that I had prepared here. But... I'd still like to address something technical today, um, so let me toss a coin here and decide what we're going to do. Well, that solves that. Uh, I guess I'm not going to talk about the Industrial Revolution. I will save that for another episode. However, our next episode is going to feature um, an artist that I talked to, I interviewed a couple weeks ago, named Mark Dugali. And his uh, incredible take on the motorcycle and art and life in general. I uh, had a really good time sitting down and talking with him about all the things that make his brain revolve. And uh, I don't know, it's really it was really interesting. And that was a really cool interview. And in the end, I barely talked to him about the bikes at all. Like the 
meanings behind the bikes, but I'll, I'll get into that. What am I wasting my breath this episode for? Just stay tuned for that uh, next episode. And uh, I think I guess everything that I wanted to talk about in this episode, as far as the Industrial Revolution, will still be relevant in one week. You know what I'm saying? So no, no loss. So let's talk about some tech stuff. Last week, we talked about some suspension stuff, right? Uh, kind of how to do the generic man's way of getting your suspension aligned and trued up. And before that, we had talked about wheels. So what I want to talk about now is a very specific suspension. Um, if you know what an Earl's fork is, you know that it's not a traditional fork, um, like a even like a cartridge fork. You know, it's, it's a, not a spring and damper style. It's uh, rigid. And if you know, obviously the conventional forks, they're like a spring and damper style. And uh, to be clear, it's not dampener. A dampener is something that gets something damp. Uh, damper is the correct terminology for those uh, things, the oil reservoir in your shock that uh, regulates how much damping force you have, not dampening force. That would be regulated by Mother Nature, baby. Or I could make a really gross joke right now about underwear, but I'm not going to. Anyway, so uh, yeah, if you if you know how a conventional fork works, let's look at a, a BMW front fork because they kind of have the best of both worlds. And uh, I let me see if I can find in my files here where I've I've done a little drawing of one and uh, see if I can put that up on our website for you to look at. But let's uh, talk about that because they're pretty interesting and. Um, I, they have their benefits, and th- their design is, um, I don't know. I guess it, it, the the advantages of it is that you don't get it misaligned. So let's talk about a BMW fork real fast, and let me describe it to you. All right, let me think of the models that have this. I know the GSAs have it. What is that noise? Dude, the studio next door was playing rave music the last time I was recording, so I had to shut off, and now they're playing... I can't tell. It sounds like galloping horses. Let me uh, do a test listen and see if you can hear this. All right, we're good to go. You cannot hear a thing, so excellent. Um, all right, so let's let's get into the whiskey and dancing of these uh, BMW suspension aspects. So BMW, if they don't have a traditional fork, which some of the models don't, um, I believe the the G models do. Um, the, you know, like the G650, uh, GS and the Sertau. And, uh, obviously I think the G310 is going to have this, um, traditional suspensions and the R, uh, the scrambler, the R9T, whether it's inverted or not, I mean, they typically have the, um, traditional suspension, you know, spring and, and damper. So, um, when you're looking at stuff like the R1200GS and the R1200RT, they have uh, a different type of suspension. And, and to sum them up real fast, they have what uh, BMW has what's called a telelever and a dual lever in the front. And then in the rear, they have the paralever, which is the single-sided swing arm. And shaft drive is really, really nice, no adjustments. And um, so... Let's talk about the telelever first because that one's pretty funky to look at. If you look at most bikes with the telelever front end, the the frame is a two-piece frame. There's a front and a rear, and the motor is actually, you know, a structural piece of the of the frame because the front basically is just a strut that's up there to hold the front end suspension 
uh, to the bike, and then you mount the cowling and stuff to that. You know, the headlights and the windshield and all the stuff mounts to that. So it's basically just like uh, out there as like a scaffolding to hold the front end on to the motor. And then the rear subframe does all the rest of the stuff uh, for the rear end. And then the paralever just mounts um, basically to the motor since it's a shaft drive. So on the front end, this telelever is basically, uh, it's really unique when you're looking at it because it looks like conventional forks. Of course, there's two fork legs sticking down that you can see. Um, you can see lower triple clamps or triple trees or fork tube bracket, whatever you call it. And what you really don't know, or what is when, funny when you look at it, is that um, on most traditional forks, the triple clamps are mounted to the fork tube that's not moving. So if you have an inverted fork, they're mounted to the outer tube and the inner slide up and down. And on a you know, non-inverted non fork, the clamps mount to the smaller inner tube and the outside sliders slide up and down on the fork legs, basically. But what's unique about the telelever is that the lower fork tube bracket that you can see um, clamps on the outside of the outer tubes. And what you can't see is that the upper triple clamp clamps to the inner uh, fork tubes. So how does this work? If you have the, you know, on a traditional fork, you've got the steering stem connecting these two triple clamps. How the hell does the fork move, right? So that's where the, where the telelever comes in. And it's basically like a control arm that mounts back there uh, next to where this the front frame mounts to the motor is where the swing arm mounts too. And... The swing arm basically mounts via a ball joint to that lower triple clamp that you can see. And the only real thing that the upper triple clamp does is it um, the handlebars mount to that just like a traditional triple clamp. And so you're doing the steering with the upper triple clamp and the handlebars. And you're doing all the fork modulation with the lower triple clamp. And that's why it's on a ball joint is because the ball joint mounts that lower triple clamp to this, this uh, swing arm. like a, It's like an A-arm, control arm, almost like on a car. Uh, so it's mounted to that control arm. And that control arm is what swings up and down. So as you hit a bump and it pushes those outer fork tube sliders up, they move this uh, swing arm up. And, or this control arm. And on the, mounted to the control arm is a spring, and the other end of the spring is mounted to this uh, front subframe. So that's where your compression's happening. It's not happening within the spring, and inside the, uh, inside the fork tubes, uh, there's nothing. Oh, well, there's, like, uh, there's dampers, like rubber dampers or damping blocks or something inside there that are basically like uh, cushioned spacers. And that's all that keeps your fork from bottoming out is these these spacers uh, won't let it go up any further and they keep what, you know, hollow spaces in there filled where you would have like a spring and the fluid in a, in a traditional fork. I mean, you still have the inner tubes in there, but these dampers take up the or these like cushion spacers things take up the rest of the inside. So it's really interesting to, to, to see how these things work and to realize that um, you will probably not experience the same sort of um, twisting with these as you would with a traditional fork just because you have uh, something clamped to the outer and something clamped to the inner. And that's not to say things can't get misaligned just like a regular fork, just because uh, like a regular fork, the upper um, trip, you know, the upper triple and the lower triple can move independently of each other. Um, so I guess I shouldn't say you won't experience the same sort of twisting, but it's just a unique system. It seems 
like this was designed to like keep rigidity. And actually, I was reading something um, on BMW's website. I actually found a link to all these things, so I'm going to put those up on our site instead of uh, so you can get a visual for it uh, because it's pretty interesting. But one thing that it does is it it pretty much keeps the rigidity of the forks because you don't have independent you know damping working on you know each side on your fork at a small small level you know one side can come up more than the other one i mean it seems so weird to think of that and twisting and whatnot but this basically affords you some rigidity while keeping the same um you know the same function of the fork going up and down it's not like redesigning the fork dramatically it's just enough to keep rigidity like when you're going over bumps and supposedly it uh, it allows the ride to be smoother because you're not getting m- more outside forces on it just because of how rigid it is to the frame and everything. So that's uh, one reason why they have the telelever. Now, the dual lever is even more interesting, and that one can be found on bikes like uh, the K1600. Um, I forget what other bikes I might have seen it on. I know I've seen it on a ton of bikes. My, maybe a lot of K bikes have it. Oh yeah, before I jump on to the uh, dual lever, one more thing I want to say about the telelever is that if you uh, have seen this um, on their R1200RT, the, uh, basically they have the dynamic d- or the damping, you know, electron- electronically controlled suspension damping. And how they're doing that on these new bikes is that, and actually this has gone back quite a ways. BMW has always been like the luxury bike uh, since I can remember Going back, shoot, probably to like, I want to say 2006 or something is the first time I really started working with a lot of BMW data and seeing all this cool systems that they had. And I think they had it back then where they had electronically adjustable suspension. And what it does is uh, with the telelever, I mean, with forks, this would be really hard to have like a sort of like a microcontroller or some sort of damping system that could be adjusted on the fly while you're riding. You know, most adjustments on the forks are made via the, the the preload and damping screws on the top and on the shocks. You know, you usually have the little lever that you can crank, you know, and a lot of off-road shocks has like a hand wheel that you can crank. So f- even these on the newer ones, I think you can do it on the fly. But even on the older ones, you had to stop and like push the button and let it do it, you know, let it set. But the fact that you could do that was pretty amazing. And how, th- I mean, it's so easy to do with this type of system because there's nothing mechanical that you have to interact with except for that strut the uh, shock absorber there in the front on that control arm basically so nowadays they do it with like a stepper motor and they have like a little level sensor that goes on there uh, that plugs into the strut and it'll detect you know it's got like a little um, heim joint sort of arm that detects like how much uh travel and actions getting so what it does is it measures that and it will you know when you adjust it it'll it'll stiffen up the shock or or soften it up so it's pretty amazing that all you have to do is do that with one shock absorber in the front um and then or like a you know it's like a strut i guess basically and that's that you no more messing with other stuff so this this telelever is really simple in the fact that it not only provides rigidity but that's how they can put these cool systems like the ESA on there and not have to worry about figuring out a way like to mechanically control two different you know two different sides of your uh forks you know put something on to, that goes to each fork or how are we going to do this you know run like a 
hydraulic tube that goes to, you know, you don't have to mess with none of that. Just when you, the less, um, sh- you know, damping components that you have to work with, the better. So uh, moving on to the dual lever, it's the same sort of thing. The dual lever is really interesting because that doesn't even have um, forks. It has a fork basically in the front. And the fork is mounted um, via a shear joint to the steering. So how that thing works is the steering on those doesn't even have an upper triple clamp. It's just got like, it feeds through the frame. You know, the handlebars bolt to this like a shaft, basically like a steering stem. And the steering stem goes down and bolts to the shear joint. So when you turn, the shear joint basically looks like the letter X sort of with the hinge in the middle. So if you could imagine that the top part of the X can flex and the bottom part can flex because they're joined where the X crosses over there in the middle, that's a joint also. So it's really kind of cool. And how that works is that the top part of the X bolts up to that little steering head where the handlebars are that's coming down through the frame. And the bottom part of the shear joint bolts to the front fork. And basically what you have there is um, that's your steering input. You know, that shear joint transmits the your handlebar input to the fork input. Now, from there, the fork is just bolted, again, via a couple of um, ball joints to the absorber again. And the absorber rides on two swing arms this time, uh, which bolt to the front of the frame. And instead of just having, like, that front control arm sort of thing like the telelever, this one's got two, and the top of the fork um, bolts to the the upper one, and the bottom of the fork... uh, in the, like inside the fork leg right above the tire is where the second ball joint is and that bolt so you got two a arms basically moving up and down if you've ever seen like a formula one car if you look at one of their wheels how they have two little a arms down there with the t- with the wheel in between it well that's how it is on this motorcycle except that the, instead of facing that way the wheels facing you know those two little A-arms are facing forward on this bike instead of out to the sides like a race car or a dune buggy or anything like that. If you've seen, you know, if you know what A-arms are, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so those A-arms are bolted to the frame and they move up and down and they're both bolted to the fork so that the fork doesn't like flop back and forth. I mean, you need it rigid. And that's the telelever, how you keep it rigid, is you have it running through triple clamps just like a normal suspension except for the upper triple or the lower triple clamps goes up and down, right? Cause the top ones stay, uh, stay still uh, bolted to the upper subframe. Well, on this one, that shear joints, the only thing connecting it to it. So without like two points of contact on the actual fork assembly, like the, <clears throat> the upper or, you know, the bottom would be rigid, but the top would be able to flap around and your wheel would tuck up into your radiator. Right. So you need two a arms and, how they mount this shock is that it mounts to the lower a arm and then up again to the frame very similar to the telelever in delivery except for the mounting is just what's different um you don't have fork tubes you just got this big like uh cast or stamped um fork they just call it like a fork because that's all it is it's not two independent of any anything it's just one big fork assembly that sticks down there and that's how it's easy to do the uh adjustments on these too because once again just like the telelever front uh fuck what's the word the telelever front strut 
this one also just has a front strut and all you need to do to be able to you know implement this esa stuff the electronically electronic suspension adjustment is put some sort of um, module onto that front shock stiffen it up or lighten it up and there you go and i believe i i, I don't think these have the um the stepper motors or not the stepper motors but like they're kind of like stepper motor st- sensors that uh you know, they get your input and see if that, you know, every time you you adjust it, that's those sensor, stepper motor sensor things is kind of like what uh, dials it in or makes it soft or hard. And uh, I know that the S1000RR has this now, too, where they have a um, adjustable suspension on that thing, and you can tighten it up or you can... Um, you know, it's, I think they call it dynamic damping, and basically it's the same sort of thing. You you dial it in, and this uh, these modulators just either make it soft or make it um, a little stiffer, depending on exactly what your ride qualities are looking for. Now, with the S1000RR, uh, I don't think BMW calls it an IMU, but they have... Um, you know, they've had this, like, sweet-ass electronics package on this thing for a while that has detected all the same stuff that the basically that the six axis IMU on the Yamahas and the Ducatis and the KTMs and all that great shit is getting. And BMW BMW's had this for a little while. I think there was a Bosch IMU that they were running on it, but they didn't really call it an IMU. They just said we've got wheelie control and we've got like race ABS and rain modes and all this crazy traction control. And they just called it an ECU basically. <laughs> so nothing fancy. IMU was like the word of the show in 2015 at IMS. So everybody was so proud of that word and proud of their, uh, the components that they were throwing on their bikes. So, um, yeah, so BMW just calls it, uh, an ECU and Bob's your uncle, right? So, um, yeah, that's basically the, the, the telelever and the dual lever, um, in a nutshell, I will definitely put a link to this BMW on their website it has a page devoted to this. So I just found this while I was looking for pictures of these things to show you. Uh, so I didn't have to dig through my private stash of like thousands of pictures and try to find, but where did I put those, you know? So basically the paralever is this, is their, uh, single sided swing arm rear. And these things are pretty funky, especially the one on the, oh, God, I think it's the F800. The F800 has it? Yeah. Uh, maybe the RT has it, too. That's real funky because it's got, like, a, a belt drive instead of a shaft drive. That can't be the RT. must have a shaft drive. It must be the, um, God damn, the F800R must be the one I'm thinking of. All right, I had to pause that and look it up because it was driving me nuts. It's the... Uh, F800 GT that I was thinking of. It doesn't really, it doesn't technically have a paralever. It just has like a cast, uh, single-sided swing arm. And the way that thing works is, um, see on the paralevers, it's a shaft drive and it's pretty simple because you just have, uh, really, you just have a gear assembly back there with a flange and the wheel just mounts to that. It's super simple. I mean, it's like five bolts or five bolts or four, but five bolts and the wheel comes off. Right. And there's no, uh, chain adjustments or belt adjustments or none of that stuff to put on if, and and that's their parallel. And then, you know, mounting a a shock on a single sided swing arm is no mystery to anybody. Um, it's pretty simple, but that's again, when they do their ESA on that and, and, uh, most of the bikes now have a, uh, little stepper motor back there that 
senses the uh, amount of travel and whatnot, so you can stiffen it up and whatnot. So that's basically how they get away with that. Again, just like the fronts, when you only have one uh, strut or shock to work with, it's super easy to put some um, electronic damping on there and get it to uh, harden up if you're going to be going on some sportier rides or soften up whether you're going to be too up or not. So, yeah... So this is a total aside. I mean, that's basically the suspensions that I wanted to talk about since we were talking about that last week, you know, aligning your front suspension one out. Well, these BMW ones, they're super interesting to take a peek at. Technically, they don't twist and bend the same way that a normal fork does. And so uh, uh, BMW, I have no idea how to adjust the front ends on those, you know, GSAs and stuff. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if it's the same same techniques or if you need a BMW special tool, you know, 9343 to be helicoptered out to you in order to uh, do any sort of adjustment. So skipping on to the F800 GT rear end. I've seen this before. I forget what bike it was on. But I, I, I looked in the F800 GS and the uh, F800R both have swing arm with chain drives. And that I f- totally forgot about that. Um, so it's the GT that was driving me crazy. I couldn't think of it. So it has, <clears throat> pardon me, it has a single-sided swing arm, uh, which, again, the shock usually just mounts to somewhere and then mounts to the frame somewhere. Uh, so that's no big mystery. But the the crazy thing on this is that the drive, it, it, it's a it's a belt drive. And the way they deliver it to the rear is so weird. So the belt has, you know, a, a tranny, I won't call it a sprocket because it's a belt, but it's more like a pulley at the front. And then at the rear, the chain is like, or the the belt goes around this, you know, a toothed hoop, a, a gear, you know, a drive, drive sprocket, drive pulley whatever we want to call it, to the drive pulley is mounted this, like, crazy flange. And through the flange is mounted, like, an axle with the flange on it, which is goes through an eccentric. And I believe that's how... Uh, and then inside there, there's a bunch of, like, drive uh, hubs and, like, drive hub dampers, which are, like, these rubber blocks. And basically what that does... Um, is we'll talk about that when we I want to talk about rear suspension. So we'll talk about that. I'll tell you what those do in another episode. So but this eccentric here, how you adjust the belt on it is is that. I think you I forget the procedure on this, but yeah, I think you rotate it and it doesn't hold the axle right in the center, obviously, because it's an eccentric sort of like a, it's not a bearing. It's not an eccentric bearing. It's like this whole, they call it an eccentric. Uh, and it's just like this crazy shaft housing that the axle shaft goes through after like mounting to these two other flanges to mount to the drive pulley. So it's really interesting. Uh, I should put this on there, but I don't think there's pictures anywhere publicly that you can see this um anyway if i could find some i'll stick them stick them with the show notes but it's just such an interesting thing uh i realized when i was talking about um how to adjust your suspensions that there's always going to be some bike that doesn't use that and i was thinking of earl's forks of course and then i was thinking well, what about beamers even those look like they have traditional forks but they're not on some of the models so i'm not sure how you adjust those and um on the telelever, you may be able to do it just like the other ones because if you think about it, the ball joint holding the telelever to the lower triple clamp really um, 
is more or less just like an extension. Uh, it would be it would be like the steering tube, basically, like your steering stem coming through the head tube there. So it's kind of the same thing. You might be able to adjust the telelever suspensions the same way you adjust a regular suspension, but those um, the dual levers, no way. There's just like so many components going on there, and that that fork, the shear joint, that little X with the uh, hinge in the middle. That thing is so trippy. I always wondered, like, when you hit stuff, how easily those bend out of shape. And if you were to hit something sideways, how, uh, you know, the force would get deflected coming through that big-ass fork assembly, you know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post a link up there so you can check out how they work. And maybe I can find some. Eh, don't hold me to it. It's, it's uh, not within my scope of capability right now to find like animations of how all these things work, but pretty interesting shit to say the least. And I would have felt bad if I left you uh, with no technical information this week. So um, just a couple more points uh, of interest and then we'll wrap it up. So Monday, of course, I was looking for some really sweet uh, news stories that nobody had covered yet on the motorcycle sphere, and I found one from Fox News in Florida. And then, of course, by like Tuesday or Wednesday, it was all over the internet. <laughs> so um, I guess a good motorcycle story does not stay quiet long in the motorcycle world. So basically, I'm sure you've seen it already. A woman who was uh, fighting to keep her motorcycle riding pet alligator in Florida uh, was worried about him. He's six feet long. He's 125 pounds. Yeah, something like that. And that's all good. And she's got a she's got a license for him, um, which she's had for 11 years now. But he recently grew to six feet. And I'm guessing just like cattle or pigs or anything else or chickens even. If you want to own something, there's always some legality and minimum required space involved. So uh, an alligator of that size apparently has to have two and a half acres of land to wander around on is uh, basically what the wildlife officials have told her. So her alligator, whose name is Rambo, is pretty sensitive to light. And uh, she's apparently taught him not to bite, which if you know about animals that's called taming not domesticating you can't not domesticate a croc uh, an alligator but you can tame one i guess so anyway she uh was talking to the orlando sentinel and she said that uh she's been given permission to have him out and she takes him to schools and charity events to teach him about reptiles and uh, apparently she's been taking really good care of him it's just like a little bit of red tape on his uh, size versus uh the trailer that she lives in. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know where she has him. But anyway, uh, that's one thing that happened. Another thing, of course, this is old news now, but uh, Dane, I, I mentioned in the last episode that I had watched the Daytona 200 and was not too shocked but disappointed that um, Danny Eslick was not there. Of course, he fought with a law enforcement officer and uh, pushed him in the chest and was arrested and booked and I don't know. There was a there was a nice uh, episode of Two Wheel Enthusiast podcast called "Sorry for Partying," where they talk about you know uh, personalities in the sport and what keeps things exciting. If you just saw a bunch of robots similar to Marquez and and uh, what's the other guy's name? 
Um, you know, the guy that everybody hates because he beat Valentina Rossi. Lorenzo. And I'm not going to say Lorenzo because I'm not Spanish. So fuck you, Lorenzo. Anyway, yeah, those those guys are just a bunch of... Even, even Rossi at this point to me is like just watching a bunch of robots going around. So they're saying, you know, people with personality uh are, are the spice of life and what get people interested in your sport and unfortunately it's hard to, to stay uh clean cut and be much of a personality at all so danny eslick who's one of my favorite racers apparently he's not going to be able to race in any of the ama or asra for that matter who is putting on the daytona 200 uh race at any of their events until his criminal case is cleared up and from what i read recently is um I don't know about the charges or whatnot, but uh, they they reduced it to misdemeanor. And the last thing I read is that they're trying to figure out how, you know, he lives in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, how he's going to report to uh, the, you know, I don't know what county that is, but to the sheriff's office there in Florida and uh, provide like drug and alcohol screenings and stuff like that. Cause he has to do that and he has to do counseling. So those two things happened. Uh, William H. Macy uh, ended up winning the Daytona, Daytona 200. And uh, I'm just kidding about that. It was actually uh, Michael Barnes. He, he looks a lot like William H. Macy. If you look at his, uh, po- uh, the podium where he's holding up his little Rolex watch, um, yeah, it was really cool seeing Barnes uh, win. I think he's like 48 or something like that. So, I mean, he is like, it was cool seeing a, an older guy out there just whipping people's asses. So that was that was a really good, fun, cool race to watch. And um, just kind of bummed that Danny Eslick wasn't there to defend it. And hopefully he's, you know, I want to see Danny Eslick racing in the Moto America stuff too. So. Hope that stuff gets cleared up. The uh, oh God, this this weekend I was uh, couldn't make it out to the Del Mar Flat Track Finals, and I was bummed. I was really bummed because this not only was the final event I believe of the Del Mar uh, Ivy League Flat Track season, but it was also the their junkyard build off. And they had uh, at the beginning of the season, they had a five hundred dollar junkyard bike that you had to get, and everybody kind of brought them and showed uh, what they were going to be back in the February. Uh, I believe it was February ninth. They showed them off there. Some of them were in pieces, and some of them were sort of complete, but it looked like they'd been dug out from underneath a pile of old uh, rusty car parts and uh, abandoned dead bodies and stuff. So they're pretty interesting stuff. I would have loved to see who won that. Uh, you know, and they had, of course, they had a TT there too, which would have been cool. I also did not make it to the Hell on Wheels. Uh, I forget what they called it, but they had a TT and a flat track, like a, a double header, also out at Paris. So on Sunday, yeah, I believe that was the 13th. So I didn't make that. I didn't make the Del Mar on the 19th. And I uh, had some, you know, just personal stuff coming up with some supporting of my kids school and uh, my wife's job and all that stuff so had you know life got in the way of having fun but now that we're kind of calming down here uh personally and family wise and for me a little bit work wise uh be able to get out to some more of those things be able to go get some cool pics and there's a lot of stuff coming up and actually i wanted to mention that there's going to be a trophy motorcycles uh which is a uh, friend of the show, Tim uh, Johnson, 
and uh, his business partner, they run Trophy, and they're having their seventh year anniversary desert party, uh, March 25th through 27th at Holmes Camp out in Ocotillo Wells. So check that out. Uh, look uh, Trophy Motorcycles on Facebook, and I think you'll see all their details. <clears throat> Pardon me, all the details there. And also, there's another Hell on Wheels event coming up, I believe, at the end of March. Oh, no, I stand corrected. It's uh, April 10th. It's going to be at Glen Helen again at the Trophy Truck Track. And it's going to be the Stadium Steeplechase Part 2, basically. And they say uh, this is round 2, April 10th. If you miss the last one, don't F up this time. Uh, It's your last chance for a while. So um, early entries get an extra hour of practice, which last time that wasn't the case. They, you know, when you do something like this, it's pretty grassroots and... uh, just a little club putting it on it's not like a national thing you know things don't always go as planned but it was pretty sweet the the trophy truck track just looks so bomb ass cool the the jumps are real huge for the trucks but uh i mean compared to like a motocross track they're far apart and low you know so it was pretty cool um watching that so if you get a chance uh, make it out there. They're having classes for babes ride out and mini bikes up to 100cc. Then they got all the regular ones, which is vintage, modern, vintage open twin, uh, bomber, Harley Davidson street bike, all that great shit. So there's practice at 11 and then racing follows. So check that out and uh, take a drink with you. Take some shade and some sunscreen because uh, I'm sure it's going to be at least 80s uh, in it not 90s it has been warming up here in socal so yeah that's some cool stuff happening a lot of shows starting to kick off around here a lot of um stuff downtown la i'll report on some of that later but that was just a couple things in the news that i wanted to blab about before i get us out of here so stay tuned for next episode like i said before uh we're going to be one more episode closer to the solstice slam all that's going to be left is 18 and 19 baby so get your material in while you can uh enjoy our next episode which features an interview with artist mark dugali and we're going to talk to him about everything under the sun. And then what else? I'm going to bring you, I guess I will try to do my uh, Industrial Revolution spiel then and uh, talk about some technology and some other great shit. And until then, peace out, baby. Solstice Slam. Don't forget it. Later. Blah, 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 further than from LA to San Diego that's like San Diego to all right I'm going to edit this out just because this isn't oh 240 miles is a pretty good you know that's basically our working to keep black boxes uh oh mm, I don't know like Santa Clarita or something like that and the um 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 and the um